You're listening to Al Pastor, the show that helps you love God, love your neighbor, and eat more tacos. I'm your host, Pastor Brian. Welcome to the show. Well, hello. I want to welcome you to another podcast. We're going to be going over Exodus chapter 1, verses 7 through 14. I want to get right into it. We're going to tackle the question of how did Israel come under Egyptian bondage? So these uh, these eight verses really are grouped together by this common theme, how the, uh, the children of Israel went from favor to disgrace, from being protected uh, to slaves laboring under uh, the oppression in the hand of Pharaoh. What's the reason for that? Well, we're going to find out. It happens to be their numerical growth. And this is a huge, huge irony. Now, the irony is that growth is a blessing from God. They were fulfilling the divine mandate from God's original creation decrees, right? Be fruitful and multiply. This is a sign of the favor in the hand of God. And so what this section of Scripture tells us is that oftentimes the blessings and the favor of God are in a direct conflict with the system and the culture of this world. And oftentimes they're a threat to people or to organizations that are not aligned with God's will. And so as they experienced more oppression, get this, their growth increases. This seems to be the case throughout history of God's family that grows under persecution. Think of the underground church in China and and a lot of these churches that are in like Muslim nations. They seem to flourish when there's when there's opposition and persecution. So this is going to be a great little portion of scripture, right? Only 7 verses 7 through 14. So let's read uh, as always I'm reading out of the New King James. So let's start in verse number 7. It says, but the children of Israel were fruitful and increased abundantly, multiplied and grew exceedingly mighty, and the land was filled with them. Now, almost all of this vocabulary that's found in this verse, in verse number seven, okay, I would circle the verses like fruitful, increased, multiplied, grew exceedingly mighty. I mean, these are good key words. These words reflect back to the creation account, don't they? Showing how Israel was in itself as a collective unit, a fulfillment of these creation commands from God. Specifically, this is found in Genesis chapter 1, verses 22 through 28. If you want, you can pause this, go go flip over there, look at Genesis 1, verse 22, Genesis 1, verse 28. Make a note of these verses. Now, this also shows us that this story of creation is one of an ongoing creation. It started with Adam and Eve, right? And then we see the cycle. We have creation, blessing, we have sin, and then we have a new creation. Same cycle with Noah. We see the same uh, type of cycle with the patriarchs. Uh, and then with Israel culminating in a new creation. And then, of course, all those that put their faith in Christ are made new, right? Isn't that what 2 Corinthians 5.17 says? You, you say, what, what, what does that say? 2 Corinthians 5.17. 
says, if anyone is in Christ, he is what? A new creation. So this is part of what we're seeing here. Now, the land that is mentioned here um, does not refer to Egypt in its entirety or uh, for the earth for that matter, but this is specifically the area of Goshen. I think that that's important um, because sometimes people can, you know, okay, well, what do you mean what land? It's pretty obvious they're, they're in Goshen. Okay, verse number eight. Now there arose a new king over Egypt who did not know Joseph. Now, I got to give my flowers when they're due, right? And the NIV actually, I know sometimes I'm a little hard on the NIV. It's not my favorite translation, but the NIV translates this as, as listen. Then a new king to whom, to whom Joseph meant nothing came to power in Egypt. That's spot on because it gives us the sense or the meaning or the interpretation. See, there are times when translations can insert some interpretation into this. And this is actually a, a good example of that. There's some bad examples. What would a bad example be? Well, we talked about it at a Bible study, that whole debacle with Shiloh. Um, but it, but this is the sense of this. Um, there arose a new king to really, it's like, Joseph, who cares? Joseph means nothing. And so we also see in this verse, this is just a, a reference to a, to a a vast political and ideological shift in Egypt. Not only that, we are now leaping forward in the timeline. You would say, how far into the future have we traveled from, from, from uh, verses 1 through 6 to verse 8? About 100 could be 100, push it up to about 200 years. So we have, we've time traveled in an instant. Now, it's, it's highly likely that Joseph rose to power, which we read about in Genesis 41 and 42, during the time of what's known as the Hyksos pharaohs. You're like, who is that? Well, these are, these are an outside people group that had invaded and conquered Egypt. And then Egypt, from within, um, expelled the Hyksos people. And this is an accomplishment that is very, very celebrated in Egyptian history. And it's understandable um, that the feeling against foreigners would run really, really high. Now, what I'm going to do is I'm going to post on Faith Life some supplemental notes on the Hyksos people so that you can see for yourself. Now, I want, I want you to keep in mind that the dating of Exodus is very, very difficult. There is a huge debate I would not, um, I mean, unless you really want to, I wouldn't encourage you to get into the mud with this because there's a lot of mud, a lot of weeds, lots of scholars, lots of archaeologists debate this issue about dating uh, Exodus. Some people place the, the Hyksos after the Exodus. They say, you know, the Hyksos came um, as God delivered Israel. There was a vacuum to be filled. Pharaoh and his armies were drowned. And they saw this as an opportunity, so they came in, and this was a result of God's intervention. That's okay. There are some that say the Hyksos were, um, you know, really, they were, they were opportunists. Um, mainly cited because of an account from a historian by the name of Josephus, which relies heavily on another person's account appearing. He, he documents the Hyksos appearing suddenly, and the quote says, 
like as a blast from God. Now, is that possible? Absolutely. Absolutely. I'm going to tell you my personal opinion based on research is that the Hyksos were empowered during the time of Joseph. I believe that they had been overthrown, resulting in a new pharaoh who did not know slash regard Joseph. And let me give you a few reasons for this. There is a sudden shift in power, which made the Israelites uh, essentially foreigners. They were stripped of their rights in the land, which resulted in slavery. This is a huge shift politically and ideology that happened um, seemingly uh, at the snap of a finger. Now, the new pharaoh, possibly of Egyptian blood, like full, full blood, was determined to prevent any foreigner from rising to power again. Joseph, being as high in a position as he would, would have been a stain to nationalistic Egypt. Uh, he would not have any, this new pharaoh wouldn't have any loyalty to any of the agreements of his Hyksos predecessors that had been worked out with Joseph. In other words, like, hey, the, these are descendants of Joseph. We have a long-standing agreement that they are going to, they've settled in the land. They get the best of the land. And so in the context of not knowing Joseph, it seems to imply that this new pharaoh refused to honor any of those arrangements, those protecting status uh, things that the decrees that have been put in place from Genesis 47.1, right? We also see that the use of uh, what we're going to see in the Exodus, the use of chariots, the use of bows, the use of swords, and even, get this, the worship of Baal, which is evidenced through, through Exodus, were historically introduced by the Hyksos. Super, super interesting. So again, you may or may not be interested in that. If you are, like I said, I will post supplemental notes on the Hyksos people. All right, verse number nine. <clears throat> Here's the, the, the Pharaoh. And he said to his people, look, the people of the children of Israel are more and mightier than we. So I want you to take note of this. This is very, very important. So please listen, listen well. This is the Pharaoh speaking, not the Egyptian people. The Pharaoh initiated the campaign against the Israelites. And ultimately, this came to include genocide, attempted genocide. And so individuals are capable of inflicting massive, massive evils. And this is because individuals, I like the way that the Bible Project worded this. It's about the evilness of, of sometimes leaderships and politics. Uh, people are far more capable of doing evil than they are of doing good. If you don't believe me, just check the good books of history, right? How about a man by the name of Lenin? If it weren't for one man, it would be unlikely that communism would have taken over Russia and ultimately... Uh, created the Soviet Union, where it enslaved over 150 million people and murdered tens of millions of people, all because of Lenin. How about Mao Zedong? That's known as Chairman Mao. This man is personally responsible for the deaths of over 60 million 
Chinese men, women, and children. How about Kim Il-sung? He is the man who has created the most totalitarian state in human history. Do you happen to know what nation that is? North Korea. How about a man by the name of Adolf Hitler? Massacred six million Jews. Why am I saying this? Because it is oftentimes throughout history that men have risen to great power and begin to wield or flex that power of great, great evil. And so we will see a shift, okay, in the text. It's going to go from Pharaoh to the Egyptians to, in order to execute his plans, and then the Egyptians are going to be complicit in the actions because they are going to go along with it. And then they are going to bring on themselves what is known as collective guilt. Why am I spending time on this? It's going to be important when we frame the judgments of Exodus, okay? But notice that it starts with Pharaoh. Now, also notice that Pharaoh refers to the Israelites using a very rare phrase. He uses, I, I, I want you to circle or highlight, and if you use Logos, use your, use your language tools. He says, he uses a phrase called Am B'nai Yisrael, which literally means the nation of the children of Israel. Now, there are two words for nation in biblical Hebrew. We have the word Am, which is spelled A-M. You would read it like Am. And that's what we see here. And then we also have the word goy. Okay, both of these refer to a nation. Am, A-M, refers to a nation defined by blood ties, a common ancestry, a common history, and a common language. Goy refers to a nation defined as a political unit. And so in, in Pharaoh's using um, what is he saying in effect? He's saying that the purity of the Egyptian people are being threatened by an alien presence. These children, these Om of Israel are of a different bloodline. And throughout history, bloodline beliefs have been a great source of murder and of war. Now the Bible, here's what's interesting, doesn't place much value on blood ties. For example, Jacob is regarded as the patriarch of the Jewish people, but his twin brother Esau isn't even regarded as a Jew. In fact, in Exodus 19.6, God tells the Jews to be a holy goy. That's a national unit. He doesn't call them to be a holy am, om, a blood group or ethnicity. And so the Bible holds that anyone of any race, any gender, any blood can become a Jew, just like the first Jew, Abraham, who was not a Jew, but he became a Jew later in life. He was called one. Likewise, even centuries later, how about the story of Ruth, a Moabite woman? She becomes a Jew and becomes the ancestor of King David, of which, by the way, Jesus came, didn't he? And so whenever you encounter places in the Bible where God commands like segregation, 
It is always for spiritual reasons, not racial. God warns of marriage to foreigners because of the tendency to be influenced by their culture and their gods, right? That's why we shouldn't be unequally yoked with unbelievers. Just look at the example of Solomon. Look at the example of what happened during the time of of Nehemiah and Ezra. I don't believe that they took the right course of action, but it was didn't put them in a good position. So the point is, um, is that in the economy of God, it has nothing to do with race. And this is what Pharaoh is saying. He is calling them, he is, he is differentiating them based on bloodline, not on culture, on bloodline. So again, we see just in this short verse a broader context, context of, of, of uh, events and time. Now, it was through the process of time and through indoctrination by the use of, and I'm going to use this word, propaganda, that the Egyptians themselves became complicit. What do I mean by that? Um, I mean that Pharaoh introduced it, the process of time, the Egyptians went along, they went along, they went along until they were complicit. Think of Nazi Germany. Now, not all of the Germans were evil, right? There were many Germans that were heroic that helped um, you know, uh, Jews escape. I think of like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? A German uh, theologian who stood up against Hitler. But generally speaking, most of the German population became complicit in following uh, Adolf Hitler. Did that happen overnight? The answer to that is no. It happened gradually throughout time. Slowly but surely, culture started to shift. And so this is what we're seeing here in Exodus. You know, a, a lot of times, all you got to do is turn on the news, right? And the news, whether it's real news, fake news, whatever you want to call it, they're accused of fear-mongering. They play on the fears of the people, don't they? And this is what we saw all throughout COVID. Like, hey, go get your jab, go get your shot, do all these things, regardless of where you fall on the, on the, on the whole side of the issue of vaccination or whatnot. Um, regardless, that's all you saw 24-7. This show is sponsored by Pfizer. We call that propaganda. We call that fear-mongering. Today, they call it marketing. Well, this essentially is what what Pharaoh was doing. He was playing on on a universal xenophobic tendency of people who fear losing out on something. What was the threat? Okay. What was the threat that Pharaoh was threatening them with? Hey, If we don't do something about these Israelites, they're growing, they're going to become mightier. And what does that translate to the average Joe? Well, you could lose your job. You could lose your wealth. You could lose your land. You could lose your political control. They're going to come in and take all your jobs. Doesn't that sound familiar? And so Pharaoh started beating on this alarmist drum. He was calculated. He got the approval from the masses his campaign of oppression, and and eventually the Egyptians are going to to swallow this bait hook, hook, line, and sinker, and they are going to oppress along with Pharaoh, the people of God, and they're going to say, hey, we need to take some action and take it now. And so Pharaoh is portraying his people, the Egyptians, even in this verse, 
as becoming a minority. Can you imagine the threat of that? You are going to become the minority. Here's, here's the, here's the eye-opening thing. All oppressive regimes throughout history use this same playing card, this threat of great and imminent danger, whether it's real or whether it's imagined. And they use this to justify violations of human rights. They use this to justify uh, the twisting of laws and and, uh, essential things that have been governing a society for years. There is nothing. The book of Ecclesiastes says there is nothing new under the sun. So again, let's read verse 9. And he said to his people, picture this now. Picture him up on a, pe- on a platform. Behold, the people of Israel are too many and are too mighty for us. Can we say propaganda? What's the result? Look at verse number 10 now. He says, come, come. Let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply, and it happen in the event of war that they also join our enemies and fight against us, and so go up out of the land. So here is Pharaoh's proposed plan of action. This is Pharaoh, build back better. This is Pharaoh's make Egypt great again. You fill in the blank, whatever politician you like, right? Well, I always say I'll... I'll offend everybody equally. Here's his five-point action plan. It's population control. It's dealing shrewdly via enslavement. And, and this is going to be his eventual solution. This is where he wants to get to. He wants to enslave them. And so we will we'll discuss this in a little bit more detail when we get into some of those verses. But we're going to see um, enslavement is part of the end game. He's going to command the midwives to kill all Israelite male children at birth. We're going to see that starting in verse 15. And then he's going to command all the Egyptians themselves, citizens, to kill every male child born in verse 22. Here's the thing. As we are reading Exodus chapter 1, you need to see the process that's involved. We read it and we sit down and we open our Bible and we read chapter 1 and we're like, okay, yeah, okay. No, 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 no. Let's let's take a step back. Let's say time out. We got to put some... Uh, you know, I always tell Noah, I'll put some shoes and socks on this thing. You gotta, we gotta see, see it for what it is. So let's deal shrewdly with them. The threats, their growth is being portrayed as a threat, and this couldn't be tolerated. This threat's going to justify violating Israel's rights by by even saying, in the event of war, that Israel's going to side with the enemy. Of course they would, right? And not Egypt. I mean, why, why would they be loyal to us? This kind of propaganda has worked countless times in history. I mean, if, if a political party or government wants um, uh, to, to have carte blanche freedom to oppress a group within a nation, it always starts by defining that group as the undermining force. They're a real danger. They are the, the, they are the agent of destruction. They are going to overthrow the established order. Pharaoh was spewing this kind of, I'm using these words, right? These, these trigger words, ethnic hate, which has been, this has been employed in the modern world to justify persecution like you wouldn't believe. Even genocide. 
even genocide, folks. I mean, we're talking from even in the United States from abortion, but then when you get into other countries, holy cow. And so like most propaganda, this is just a distortion of truth. It's not totally false. It's just a distortion rather than just being an outright lie. Yes, the Israelites were foreigners. Yes. Yes, they were of the same region of the Hyksos. And their ancient ethnic loyalties, you know, they, they had some ties that went way, way back. Those, those loyalties ethnically were, in fact, probably stronger than the political ones that they had currently in Egypt. No doubt about that. So the final words of Pharaoh's speech, notice what he says. He, uh, he says, unless they join our enemies, this is verse 10, right? and fight against us and escape from the land. Or some translations will say, go up out of the land. Now, this is a very rare idiom. There's, in other words, an expression of speech. It literally means like to rise up out of the ground. Now, this phrase is only used two other times in the Bible. It's used in Genesis 2.6. And the Bible says, but a mist went up from the earth and watered the whole face of the ground. And then it's used in Hosea 1.11. The children of, listen to this verse, the children of Judah and the children of Israel shall be gathered together and appoint for themselves one head and they shall come up out of the land for great will be the day of Jezreel. So what is this? What's the point? This, this expression has to do with either water rising or people rising up over the land. That means overcoming, overwhelming, dominating us. Pharaoh was not saying that the Israelites were going to grow, join our enemies, and leave the land. He's saying they're going to grow, join our enemies, and overtake and overflow the land. Now, this seems to make more sense that the that Pharaoh is actually warning about being overtaken, being overwhelmed, being uh, dispossessed from within the, the foreign element that already resides within Egypt. So this speech that he's giving, it would have had more of an impact on the consciousness that would eventually help justify his full-scale campaign in oppression and murder. Crazy, isn't it? Verse number 11, therefore... They said taskmasters, taskmasters, I said taskmasters, right? Taskmasters over them to afflict them with their burdens. And they built for Pharaoh supply cities, Pithom and Ramses. I wonder if that's the Ramses from Nacho Libre. Isn't that the party Nacho played at for Ramses? <laughs> Sorry, I get distracted. Anything that's Nacho Libre related. Okay, let's dissect this verse a little bit. Verse number 11. <clears throat> so, therefore, right, as a result from Pharaoh's speech, this is, this, is, this is the action plan now from his speech. Notice the shift. They, ah, circle the word they, okay? They set taskmasters. Uh, the Bible indicates that the Egyptians now four times collectively, remember what I said, it, it started with Pharaoh, and then it's going to shift to the Egyptians. Pharaoh's the, 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 
the brains of the operation, like the Antichrist. The people now, we see this in verse 11, they, also if you'll notice in verse number 13, it says they ruthlessly, I would circle the word they there, verse 14, they make them perform harsh labor. And then again in verse 14 at the end of it, they make life bitter for them. So what's the Bible doing here? The Bible's emphasizing the collective guilt of the Egyptians. Even though it was Pharaoh who initiated the slavery and the genocide, the Egyptian people are the ones who execute it. And so individuals who initiate like mass evil need the collaboration of people to carry it out. This explains collective national punishments. We would call that we would the judgment of God through the plagues for the Egyptians that they're going to experience. Again, we're going to dive deeper into that when we get there. But part of what I'm going to ask you is, is have you studied Exodus chapter 1? If you haven't, I'm going to point you right back to this podcast, okay? So the next thing that we see is the, is the, the first step in their population control. We're still in verse 11. Is going to be in, uh, via enslavement was to reclassify the Israelites' position in Egyptian society. No longer are they going to be an independent people, but they're going to be controlled as slaves with slave masters. Their main purpose will be to perform forced labor that's assigned to them. Now, originally, their identity had been as shepherds, and they were contract herders uh, for the best of the land of Egypt. This is what we read in Genesis. They had official recognition from the government in this role, Genesis 47, verse 6. Now, the lower the lower a group is on a socioeconomic scale, the less likely it's going to be able to organize itself in opposition to those that are in authority. And so have you ever heard of the term before, second-class citizens? Well, step one is in place. Reduce the influence of a minority group and they will become second-class citizens. This is essentially what he's doing. The next part of the plan is that they're going to become, uh, he wants to gradually reduce their numbers. This, this would be the expected result of when you combine poverty, forced labor, that they're going to endure. You would think that they would, they would decrease in numbers. And so the Israelites are used to build two cities, <coughs> excuse me, Pithom and Ramses, which are described as supply cities. I will post a photo of a map on Faith Life of Pithom and Ramses so that you can check it out, okay? Now, these were military cities built in the very northeastern borders of the country, um, which fortified the route that invaders would come from. This separated the Hebrews from their families for long periods of time. So, I mean, understand this. Like, hey, we're going to send you off further north. These men are going to build Pithom and Ramses. How long are you going to go? Well, we're going to be gone for several months. Well, what about your wives? What about your children? You're going to separate them. Such separation, obviously, is going to cut down on the time to conceive and to even nurture and raise your children. You want to change a generation? Have, your, have both parents not at home. I'm not saying that as a knock or anything, but anyway, different topic. Um, the agriculture in Goshen is going to suffer. I mean, think about it. How can you be a productive farmer or, or, or shepherd if now all of a sudden you're a slave, a laborer, and you're away from home? 
What's going to happen? And so part of this plan assumes that the Israelites, I mean, they're going to they're going to essentially try to starve them out. Um, and this will affect their herds, flocks, and farms. Um, also, the Egyptians are notorious. Slave labor does not, slave masters don't tolerate um, sickness and ill health. I mean, these people are going to be worked daily, endlessly, regardless of their physical condition. Like, oh, I'm sorry, you got a fever? Whoops, crack the whip, right? Until some of them are, a lot of them are going to die. There's going to be complications. There's going to be malnourishment. There's going to be maltreatment. I mean, there's no OSHA. There's no HIPAA. There's no labor union. Come on, there's none of that stuff there. This is this is this is what we see here. This is verse eleven, guys. Verse twelve. Let's read it. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread abroad, and the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel. Holy cow. Do you see God's hand in this? The oppression policy is backfiring on them. Instead of reducing the Israelite populations, the Egyptians, they are growing uh, in, in parallel, if not more, to the intensity of their persecution. This is incredible. And throughout history, it seems that when it comes to the things of God, again, the greater the persecution, the greater the growth. From a natural perspective, this should not happen. This is only God. But not surprisingly, God's plan, God's purpose, God's promise will prevail. I know I'm getting a little preachy on here, but that's okay. Now, the very fears that has been has been peddled through propaganda and falsely planted in the Egyptians' minds and hearts, guess what? Now it's coming to pass. What do you think Pharaoh's saying? I told you so, didn't I tell you this? I mean, these folks are still growing. I mean, we're afflicting them. And so now this is going to serve to kind of reinforce more drastic measures, right? And this is going to add to the, the judgment, the collective punishment on, the, on Egypt as a whole. Let's read verses 13 and 14. It says, so the Egyptians made the children of Israel serve with rigor. <laughs> wow, with, 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 with rigor. They ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves. Verse 14, and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and in brick and in all kinds of work in the field. And all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. All right. So what's the answer to the population increase? Work them harder. I mean, their lives have been made bitter with hard bondage. And, and to hammer home the point that the situation was intolerable, guess what? Israel needs deliverance, don't they? Notice that it says that the, that the Egyptians made. Most Egyptians were not as evil as Pharaoh was. But as I said earlier, just as most Germans in the 1930s and 40s were not as evil as Hitler, there are relatively few truly evil people in the world. However, you don't need a big number of truly evil people to carry out an evil uh, plan on a massive scale. You only need ordinary people 
who have allowed themselves to be indoctrinated by true evil and the culture of the world. You only need people that are going to benefit from the evil. If I want to give you just one obvious example, during World War II, not only were six million Jews murdered, but their assets were stolen as well. And these assets enriched large numbers of Europeans. And you know what they did? They turned a blind eye. That means that most of Europe was complicit as well. The third thing that you need for, for evil on a grand sale is a lack of courageous good people. You know, it's been said that courage is the rarest of all good traits. There are far more kind and honest people than there are courageous people. And unfortunately, however, in the battle against evil, you can have the best traits in the world and they amount to almost nothing if it's not accompanied by courage. Here's some things that we should learn, some applications. We know that despite hardships, God's people grew. So I wonder, my question to you is, when have you grown the most in your life? Was it when things were good? Was it when things were hard? You know, there seems to be a principle that most of our spiritual and personal growth happens in the context of hard times. Why do you think that is? Here's the next thing that we can learn. Pharaoh really didn't care about Israel's past. He didn't care who Joseph was. He didn't care about any of the agreements that had been established. In other words, their world was changed overnight. This world and its system does not care and does not regard the things of God. Regardless of what happens to us, we need to know and understand that God is in control. How can this comfort you? If you really got this, how can this comfort you? You might say, I'm not going through anything right now. Maybe you aren't. But you know what? Buckle up, buttercup, because we're, we're, we're in for a ride if Jesus doesn't come back soon. Here's the third thing. The Egyptians, as a people, they progressed on the proverbial slippery slope of believing propaganda. Propaganda that was mixed with truth that had a hidden agenda, and eventually this led them as a society to begin to do unthinkable acts. So how does this relate to us today? How can we guard our hearts and our mind, in all actuality, not to fall prey to do the very same thing? Here's the last thing. If you're still with me, I want to know, how has this impacted you? How about the, this section of Scripture? How has this impacted you? Your, your reading, if you've listened to the podcast, please let me know. All right. <laughs> I got to calm down because I'm like, now I'm all wired up. It's 9.40 p.m. on Thursday night. I'm all wired up. I got I to gotta relax here. I'm like, man, I'm ready to preach. But anyways, I hope you're doing good. Um, if there's anything that I can help you with, let me know. I'll probably wait. I'm going to finish out chapter one tomorrow. I think I've given you enough to listen to for now, and we've got enough to read, especially over this weekend. But I will. I'll finish this up tomorrow. We'll see you on the next episode. Thank you for listening to Al Pastor with Brian Overturf. If you found value in this, please subscribe and get updates. Most places podcasts are available. We're right here on Anchor FM through Spotify. 
Also on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Amazon, and iHeartRadio. I hope you'll tune in for the next episode. Until then, we'll see you later. 